1: My next guest has lived the type of life they make movies about. Trained as a fighter pilot in the Australian Defence Force, he was already amongst an elite group of people. But after exiting the military, he went on to build a security company operating in Iraq after the Gulf War. As you can imagine, the need for security services was massive. And with his co-founder, Christian Bukusis, or Boo as he's commonly known, rapidly scaled the business from zero to over $200 in revenue in just over three years. And while this business achieved phenomenal success, there were challenges to deal with. Boo talks candidly about his exit and how he eventually ended up in a court dispute that lasted years. And while this was a battle he eventually won, it certainly came with a cost. If you want to understand the mindset of highly successful people and how to handle adversity, then buckle up as we explore this fascinating journey. This is Christian Bacuzas.
0: Hey, Boo, welcome to the show. G'day, Simon. Thanks for having me, mate. Uh, very excited by today's podcast. Been looking forward to it uh, for a while. Uh, it's um, it's amazing that we can connect this way, isn't it? It just, it just always blows my mind.
1: Absolutely, mate. We have the technology. <laughs> and mate, We do. I've got to say, yeah, I've been really excited about this episode too. Um, you know, one of the first things that jumped out about your profile, mate, and, uh, and obviously the, the, our, our listeners would have heard a little intro there, but, um, you, you know, I was just so excited about your background and, and hearing about your time flying fighter jets and, and I mean, obviously how, ultimately how that led to, to you being an entrepreneur. But, uh, mate, you must
0: have had some exciting times. Mate, it has been uh, a truly bizarre journey. And uh, my, the fact that I, I make a fuss of being a fighter pilot now, because I actually have a business um, where that's a, that's a big deal. We rent that out by the hour. to companies to help me with their execution. <laughs> but um, the real-life fighter pilot stuff, yeah, it was interesting. It's amazing how one thing can define you uh, so much, uh, and for me, a fighter pilot was my trade. It's my, it's my uh, MBA, my car- my Sparky's ticket, my carpenter's yeah. qualification. It's the only thing I ever uh, ever learned how to do, and it's something that um, it's the only thing I think I've ever done in life where I really wanted to do it from the start, and then. Committed a uh, you know, fourteen years from the age of five to nineteen to getting there, and then you know from nineteen to twenty-one doing all the basic training, and then from twenty-one onwards, you know actually being a fighter pilot. Yeah, it was a really it was re- it's a really interesting life journey, and you, you you talk about exits and getting out of something, and uh, you know I exited being a fighter pilot when I was thirty, but there's a lot of emotion attached to exiting things, whether it's a business or a career or anything in life, and uh, you know ticking the life life, dream, goal, big thing, the thing you always wanted to be at 21, actually presents some interesting life challenges after that. Uh, so, so yeah, so doing that for nine years, living in Australia, living in the UK, uh, being medically discharged uh, after a diagnosis of an arthritic condition, uh, all those sort of things led to um, kind of a tumultuous end to, to a fantastic career. But most people say, and I, I have to dispel this rumour because it's such a bad PR for my business right now and that is yeah Top Gun isn't real fighter pilots Top Gun is (laughs) it is a a movie about fighter pilots just like every movie about a lawyer is a movie about a lawyer or a race car driver so uh, looking forward to, to Top Gun 2 being released later this year having to start that conversation all over again. Oh uh,
1: well, mate. I gotta say, I am looking forward to that movie as well, and we've been waiting a very long time. You know, when you when you take your young kids to the 30 year anniversary of Top Gun at the movies, man, I felt old. Did you take
0: your kids? <laughs> I did that as well. Did you, you take your kids to it when they have those special? They had like yeah. a 30 year reunion, didn't they? Yeah, um, you're yeah. all showing. Yeah, it was cool. I took my son to that as well, and his mate. And uh, what was cool was at the end of it, it was like, "Man, eh, what did you think of that, mate?" And he goes, "Yeah, that was cool." So it still has its allure, I think. Um, Definitely anything definitely. where there's there's noise and speed and uh you know pitching battles it always gets the the heart and the mind racing yeah yeah absolutely
1: so so tell me i mean you, you, you uh, i just hearing that part of your story already says to me that you are in what I will say are very, very small niche of elite people in this world who actually knew what they wanted to do when they were young and, and then followed it through and actually did it. So so that instantly for me puts you in a very, very small category of people on this planet. But I've got to ask, I mean, fighter pilots, excitement, fear, I mean, a lot of people I know are afraid of speed, afraid of heights, afraid of this, or the thought of going in a fighter jet Absolutely would make them shit themselves. To be honest, um, so and so, I'm I'm wondering, were you already a bit of a thrill seeker as a kid?
0: Mate, I was a crybaby uh, when I was a kid. Actually, I was, I was a bit of a I was a bit of a sook. Um, did I? I had a pretty I had a pretty reasonable risk profile. Like I, I loved uh, water skiing and, and getting out on boats. We grew up on boats. Uh, but when it came to doing high risk behaviours, probably not so much. Except when alcohol was involved, I tended to run the, uh, <laughs> run, the run the gauntlet a little bit. Uh, I I, don't know, I think I've always had a reasonable capability. I've never been very good at anything, uh, so I've always been one of those people that just works really hard and has that you know dark determination when everyone around them is like, oh, "I'm going to get there, I'm going to win." So, so I was always really invested in in trying to achieve the level I wanted to achieve, which, which wasn't easy. So things like rowing in the first eight for school, you know, I was probably the number eight out of the eight that, that got selected. Cause I was the smallest, uh, you know, I was not, not natural at it, but I worked really hard. I was rode all through winter. It was a summer sport and, and I got there and I played first six volleyball. I'm pretty sure I was like number six to get on the volleyball team. Uh, I was in track and field and of the whole team, I reckon I was the last bloke to get on the team. Uh, so so for me, I, I always got there in the end, but, man, everything everything was hard. And, and I've, I remember doing a mission once. Uh, it was a it was an exam. It's like the, the, you do maybe 12 major e- flying exams before you, you go to fighter pilot training, just your basic training. And one of them is called your um, – oh, it's like your navigation test. So you've got to fly around and get from A to B, you know, via 16 points in between. And because you're going to be a fighter pilot, nothing goes to plan. So the guy in the back's – your instructor sits behind you and throwing in all these injects. But one of the big things they did—I don't know how they managed to keep this a secret—was on this particular navigation exercise, they built an entire dam, like in it's uh, just south of Perth, right? And that dam wasn't on the map, but there was a there was a dam about one minute further south. So you'd you'd be flying along, you'd fly over the first dam, and then you'd see the second dam, and it wasn't on your map, and you'd be like. What the hell is, is that? The first damn am I? So so you, you kind of you kind of a bit lost, and that that threw me off. And you know we're we flying around all over the place and barely making the different waypoints on time. And we ended up landing the aircraft, and I was texting back, and the, the guy who was examining me in the back, a pretty senior pilot, was like, "Shit, but he goes, I've never seen anyone make it that difficult before." But and I don't even know how <laughs> you got there, but you got there so so well done. And I think that kind of. <laughs> It encapsulates my life, mate. You, you know, mate, that was that was a freaking mess, and what a disaster! But <laughs> you, you got there in the end. So, and no rhyme or reason to it.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, classic, classic. It. Um. And, and I've got I've got so many questions for you around this this connection between your time in the air force and and where you are today. But before I get to that, even I, I I'm, I'm curious. Did, did, have you flown overseas? Have you had to do any missions? Um, was there any of that sort of stuff? I mean, you spent a fair bit of time. I'm in the air force so
0: yeah look i've i i kind of fell through the cracks i was a pretty warry young dude like i i really i only wanted to be a fighter pilot i'd never wanted to be uh maybe a helicopter pilot if i failed you know that was you know, what, what i wanted to be so when to get there i, I just like the war fighting element of it it's just like well if you're going to fly you may as well do it do it to the best of your ability in the in the hardest environment and there is a I guess, a servant leadership element to it as well. There's a real purposeful thing to be defending your country. And then when Gulf War One came around, you know, Australia sat that one out. Gulf War Two came out. But in between, we used to have a posting in the UK. So I, I left the Australian, I was on exchange for four years in the UK and flying a tornado. And that was really great for Aussies because that was the first time we got to fly an operational posting in out of Saudi flying over Iraq. But, you know, true to form with my life, um, the minute I arrive in the UK, Gulf War II kicks off, the squadron I just left gets deployed to combat and Aussies, <laughs> Aussies aren't allowed to go in, in combat missions with the UK. So my squadron leaves and I'm stuck with about 13 other foreign guys down in the Falkland Islands uh, defending... <laughs> The Falkland Islands for six weeks from Argentinian attack, which obviously never happened. Uh, <laughs> so it was a reasonably frustrating time, mate, to be honest. And then uh, what well, came back to Australia, and I was I was dealing with a medical issue then. And when I started to look at what my first business would be, I think I had an element of me which was I've got to go, I've got to go somewhere in a combat zone. I've got to see if I've got what it takes to be able to operate in those environments. I think I do, but until you're there, you're not so sure. So with a mate of mine, we can't, we. Conceptualize this company called CTG Christian Thomas Group. I was Christian, he was Thomas, and uh, we had fairly lofty aspirations. and And the group at that time was two of us, and yeah, so we we thought, what can we do? He was in the army, he was a captain in the parachute regiment, so he didn't really have any skills either. Uh, and we thought the only <laughs> place for, for for two two guys like us was just to get on an airplane and and fly to Kabul and start a business in Afghanistan, and that's what we did. and uh, that, wow. that business, business just um, just boomed. Yeah, so so that for me was spending two two years kind of full-time-ish and then a third year we, we relocated the business into the uh, tax-free zones in um, Dubai uh, and and from there we uh, flew in and out. But for me that was great. Like I was shitting myself, you know, I had no idea and I've got a machine gun and uh, Tom looking after me and a couple of drivers and and we just went from, you know, living in a – living in a little pensioni hotel type thing to owning this massive compound with people everywhere doing everything uh, over time. And, you know, and you're on the streets and you, we were there when the May Day riots were on and we almost got caught up with a, you know, a throng of people with AK-47s and machetes and all sorts. So it's, for me, I, I feel like I did get into those environments and I was able to handle myself. So I kind of felt like I ticked the box after that. Yeah, yeah you, you've had your thrills and your rush. So, so tell us a little bit about C, the well Christian Thomas Group, CTG. What, what
1: did it actually, what did the business do?
0: Look, when we set out on it, we saw that there was a bit of a boom in that private security industry and we thought, you know what, let's go and um, we'll see if we can get our uh, our nose into that trough uh, for want of a better a better phrase. Uh, but we wanted to do it in an ethical way and we wanted to try and do it in, in a way that... Um, you know, kind of changed the mark a little bit. We're fairly altruistic guys. Tom left the army because he felt that the army talked about the Hearts and Mind campaign during the Iraq war, but when he was actually on the ground and, and pushing through the al Four Peninsula and, and seeing, you know, the effect on the locals, he started to think that that wasn't true. This is a bit of a rush for oil here. Uh, I started to lose faith a little bit in it as well because when you started to really think about that whole war, I was fortunate that I wasn't involved. Some of the guys that were involved sort of struggle with it to this day uh, in terms of w- was it right or wrong. Uh, but anyway, so we thought well, we're going to do this. We're going to be altruistic. But when we got there, we just realised it was Cowboy Central, mate. It, it was literally Spurs, cigars and whiskey wherever you, wherever you looked. Um, I think that, that the saying they had, it was either misfits, mercenaries or missionaries uh, were the people <laughs> that um, rocked up in Afghanistan. And we, we were sort of none of those. So we sort of started to realise that we weren't going to be able to compete at that, at that level. So we started to rethink it and went, well, we can't be a prime contractor, but there's certainly a lot of demand here. So why don't we, instead of being one of the primes, why don't we go to all of the primes? And the next phase of our business was really, well, let's just ask and just see what people need, you know. And if, if we reckon we can get it, we'll, we'll go get it. And it was, it was literally say, hey, how are you going? What do you need? Oh, and our first contract was ex-British Army Gurkhas. because we, we hired 40 guys. The first contract I ever won was $2.8 million US dollars. That was it, you know. Wow. So so I thought, yeah, I thought this business is pretty easy. So, so, well, talk, talk me through that a little bit
1: because that's phenomenal, right? First contract is huge, but dumb it down for me. I talk, I'm, I'm a dummy when it comes to understanding security. And so, like, what, what kind of stuff you do? Because I, I think security, I think of security cameras, I think of guys standing at doors, maybe maybe some big heavy guy walking some celebrity down the street. But uh, was it like that? What, what sort of security stuff did you get involved in?
0: Oh, look, it's a very it's a very big question and i guess to answer it simply uh, there there was obviously a war after the war the place has to rebuild so there used to be a government there used to be a rough way of running the place that just got reset and you got new people running the place there's no legislation there's no law you're building an entire country from scratch, right? So, so within that, if if you uh, you know robbed the bank, yeah, uh, morally that was wrong. But was there a law? Not really. So you'd get locked up. Uh, so everything you did there, and, and they had little bits of legislation which they just copied and pasted from America in, in these books, but but there was nothing really there. So security was was a raw version of security. It was genuine security, and and by and large in Afghanistan and Iraq, everywhere else, most people just get on with it. It's just. It's, you've got to go to the shops, you've got to do some work. It's just kind of normal, right? And most of the time, 98 well 99 of the time nothing was going wrong. But there's always an element of people out there that want to do bad things. Uh, so when you look, there was a it's a very big country, very hard to get to. so there was no drones, there was none of that at the time. In fact, we innovated some technology. I'll talk about that later. Uh, there was no re- real internet. All, all you had was a mobile phone network, right? The cell towers. And we ponied up with a US security company that were uh, helping another big US, like a multi... Now, we were a small part of a $2 billion program to build a road from Kabul to Kandahar because one of the, uh, you know, the, the, the theories at the time was to rebuild a country, you've got to rebuild all the connections. You know, if people can get from A to B and you can facilitate trade and people can get around, you're not going to have those warlords and those localized issues where the further if someone goes from the village is two kilometers to go hunting. Um, So they felt if they connected the place it would work. So we had a six-month run-up to it. Tom went to Afghanistan, worked as a contractor to another major security business. I took long service leave from the Air Force and started to work a plan over here. And through that we made these connections. I flew to Afghanistan, spoke to a guy, um, and we we, we started to pull this plan together. Uh, So security was very – yeah, it was – it was private army security. It was it was guys with machine guns and weapons looking after uh, civilians who were building roads. So you you the same way you, you, you drive down to Berry or you drive up to you know Brisbane, you've got the, the machines putting tar down and uh, like any other road activity, it's just you know, every couple of days someone's trying to pop someone who's on the road because they don't want that to happen. And that was the uh, you know the the, the sympathisers with the Taliban. So we so we would just have uh, guys that would work into that contract to protect the engineers as they left the compounds, worked all day and went home, and then they would secure the compound at night. Now, you know, some of these American companies may, were off the charts in terms of they had everything. They had rocket launchers and they had, you know, stuff that that straight out of movies um, and missiles and you name it. So it was, we weren't anywhere near that because that was all – yeah, that was all quasi-government stuff that these guys had, had special uh, special agreements in place with the US government. And you'd, you would open safes underneath houses and it looked something like straight out of a, a Mission Impossible movie, what Tom Cruise would have in the basement of his house, you know. So Tom and I, every now and again, we'd go and we'd see that. We're like, wow, we, we seriously are B players here. Like, this is, this is nuts. But... <laughs> But, but as, we were, as we were going through that scenario, the, the place was starting to get a little bit more dangerous and there was a huge aid program there. So there was just like hundreds of aid agencies. And as part of our journey, we lived in a house with a, uh, an Aussie who's had a grant to help people grow lettuce. So he had lettuce growing in the backyard and people would f- drive and fly in all over Afghanistan to do lessons how to grow lettuce because they're trying to stop them from growing poppy seeds and making heroin, right? So, yeah, so so through that what we started to realise was these NGOs were starting to shrink back into Kabul because it was getting dangerous. So we sort of started pitching to the NGOs and said, well, what if we employed the people you need to get the job done and we secured them and we looked after them and we we did that, we looked after that risk? Would that be something that interests you? And then they said, yeah, that, that sounds interesting. And then we had this sort of anti-corruption thing where we had um, – there was no broadband right and the first few satellites had just gone out with and you could get this thing on this dish and put it on the roof of your car and if uh, the wind was blowing the right way and it was you know 28.4 degrees you could get uh, a signal and and from there you could do real-time photos and assessment of buildings that were being built with government with um, aid grants because what was happening is that you'd go to these villages and they'd go here's a quarter of a million dollars to build a school and they're very very smart they would build one wall of the school and take photos and send it away they'd get the next tranche of money and they'd disassemble that wall and build another build the next wall and take a photo and they would literally send photos get all the money and then they'd they'd go for the final sign off and it was gone and the village was gone so we so we would try and we we went and tried to do we had all these um, manpower plans and never have the same person do the same inspection so they could never be subject to corruption and We built this thing and then it just grew and then it just, Boo and Tom would do anything basically. We started the first mortuary service over there. So unfortunately one of our guys was killed uh, with a a roadside bomb, him and three other people in the car, and um, no one knew how to get them back home to to Nepal, to India, to South Africa and Canada, I think. Uh, So we just went through all the embassies and and asked questions and found the the appropriate coffins out at the UN and pulled all that together and and then we just became – the we just became the mortuary guys. We we got everyone out when they when they died and got them home. Wow. And that was a you know that was a that was a pretty big business, but a very poor exit. We we did a partnership with someone on that to help them start their business, and they um uh they effectively stole that business and that ended ugly again. There's nowhere in Afghanistan to go and talk to somebody about that if um someone behaves badly. But yeah, so there you go. There's a very long answer. And what's security for you? Wow.
1: Wow. Uh, mate, I'm, I'm blown away. I mean, you know, seriously, that's uh, on one hand, you know, I think we all watch enough movies to go, oh, wow, that's, that sounds like the real life sort of excitement we all watch. But I, I also imagine that's, that comes with a pretty heavy toll emotionally, I guess, with a lot of stuff as well. And, you know, geez, I mean, people talk about introducing new products and cross-selling, but, you know, when you talk about introducing a mortuary service to you know because you have people who you know have literally died i mean it's that's pretty intense
0: yeah it's it's sort of feeding into my next phase i'm just i'm just launching like a mindset program called the gid mindset the get it done mindset and and what you learn when you're in environments like that is the human being normalises to whatever environment you're in, right? So you're in a first world comfortable environment there, you're comfortable. But if you took Simon and I put you in Afghanistan and there was a gunfight around you, you would normalise to that environment, you would do fine and you would figure out a way to get it done. Uh, and that's what happens. It's like, well, it's a mortuary service because someone has to do it, you know, it's so it, it's going to be us. And, and that that leaning into problems in, in a business sense that's what set me up afterwards as well to to do you know random things like build a seventeen story hotel out of uh, out of Lego. You know, <laughs> I'm keen to explore that further. I'm keen to
1: explore that further, but uh, and and hear more about this business because I'm, I'm I truly am fascinated by it. Before I get to that, I, I'm curious because we've we've had a couple of um, sort of ex military, ex police guests on the show, and. One of the things I'm sort of interested in and there seems to be this connection with is people who have served in some sort of, you know, as I say, military or police force, and and what are the sort of synergies that, that come across from a life like that and, and how that relates to business? D- did you see any of that? Was there any moments where you found yourself in business, other than the obvious one of military and military here, you know, that's a, a pretty obvious connection, but were there, were there any other sort of behavioural or psychological things that I guess you developed in your time in the Air Force that you found came to the fore in your entrepreneurial life?
0: Oh, everything. Um- you know, for me, I think, look, what I've learned in business, there's two types of business, right? There's ethical businesses and money-making businesses. And then there's a little grey area in between where, sorry, fast money businesses, and there's that grey area in between where you can be ethical and make money at a reasonable pace. Um, I have great exposure to both of those because living in Dubai is the carpetbagger central of the planet, mate. It's it's literally like the the bar out of Star Wars uh, when you go into that place. And when I was in when I was in Dubai, it was, there was no, you know, Jumeirah Palm. There was, there was nothing there. It was just a few high-rise buildings. It was just sort of starting. Um, so it was, really was the Wild, the wild West. Uh, so I think the behavioural traits, like the key thing that everyone that comes from a service background has is a service mentality, right? So, so you're, you're constantly looking at things. You've got a level of EQ and looking at things from other people's perspectives, and that's part of the training, and that's because everything you do, you do as a team. A police officer has a partner and they're part of a squad, they're, and they're part of a precinct. The, a fighter pilot has a wingman, and a wingman is part of a formation, and a formation lives in a, in, a, in a squadron. A squadron is a wing, and a wing is in a group. Yeah, it's teams within teams, and the army is the same. You've got, you got troops, you've got um, platoons, squads, companies, divisions. So we we're like click and play, and everything that is in the military has a role, a deliverable, and people. So it's really easy, and one of my jobs before I left uh, while I was uh, working my w- way out, I was an instructor at the Joint Warfare College, and what was really cool about that was you saw how how to click Lego together, and you can literally sit there, and we used to do a whole of government campaign plans where you've got ASIO, the AFP, ASIS, local police, Red Cross, tanks, uh, ships, planes, you name it. And it's like, here's the problem, now go solve it. Uh, and I think that is something that business is insanely bad at, uh, and yes. I've, built a pra- I've built a practice around that. Um, and you know, I, I'm sitting with a client at the moment that that, that manages a 1.3 billion dollar budget a year and does no planning. And you sit there and you think all of the problems within this, in, and all the challenges within this environment right now is because there's no planning. So I think that's a key. It's people who are from that, but they also understand that planning is flexible and planning's quick. It's not something that. We don't spend yonks in, in um, analytics. You get you, you get enough data because you know as you go in a business, it, the environment's going to change, and what you innovate and how you market and who you talk to and one particular network and contact can completely pivot your business. So I think people with that service background understand that. Where we struggle in transition is the vagary of the of the civilian world. Let's call it. I mean, I've, I've been a civilian for sixteen years, and I still think like that. Uh, in the military, the police, army—if um, someone says they're going to do something, they do it. it, it and and it's, I heard someone talk about this uh, the other day. It's called the "say do" gap. And in, in the in the military, particularly in the air force, the "say do" gap is tiny. In fact, you very rarely does someone say they're going to do something and it doesn't get done. So when you're working and you you speak to someone at eight in the morning and they say they're going to do something, that's it. By four o'clock in the afternoon, you come back together. It's done. You don't have to worry about it not getting done. Whereas the inverse is true in well, probably in bigger organisations or family businesses or something that's kind of in that stagnated mode. There's not really a lot of excitement there. It's just a lot of talk and no action. Um, so mm. that, that's a big thing I think in, in for, for us as a background is really important that you do what you say.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's such an integrity.
0: It's a matter of integrity, right? So, um, it is. And I and guess and then- in... And I think the other big thing that the military teaches you, in which you are always, always dealing with as an entrepreneur, is resilience. Because being an entrepreneur, is shit, like it is hard. It's always <laughs> hard. It's never good. The only time it's good is when you you're almost when you design yourself out. But it's a it's a double edged sword because now it's like, oh, it's over. Like I don't like this phase. I, I don't like the the bit where I have to now administrate a business but all of those steps like going from having zero dollars and nothing a concept in your mind and registering businesses building it building marketing campaigns going out there pressing the flesh flesh making promises when you've got no product or anything behind you and then fulfilling those like that's a real thrill that is um but it's bloody hard as well
1: yeah, I think there'll be a lot of people listening to this nodding right now.
0: <laughs> oh,
1: yeah. and, 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 you know, look, I guess I think the message here is like if entrepreneurship was easy, everyone would do it and it would be worth nothing, right? So, you know, it, 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 there are rewards because it is hard.
0: No, there is. They are. But they're the same rewards as running a marathon, right? It's not It's not a, you know, a participation award type of award. I know now, now that I'm in my mid-40s, I definitely uh, haven't, I've got the urge to do it, but I'm a far more I know what's involved. I think that I went through a phase where the first the first business I had, you know, landed a two point eight million dollar contract and grew from there was probably uh, false, a false sense of how business works. Because yeah. uh, the next time the next round when I went to Papua New Guinea and tried to start a business there, it was much harder. And then ever since then it has been much harder. And and you know, when you're in Afghanistan, it's just two of you and you ain't the business. You don't have to worry about reporting to shareholders and doing all this compliance stuff. You just power on and and get on with it. So, yeah, so for me, that's a challenge I, I find now is when you're not an entrepreneur or you don't own your business It's and you've got all that the, – the Western world is so compliance-driven. I, I do find that hard. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. It, it,
1: it is interesting, though, in that that first business – you know, I guess, you know, I'm, I, and this is a simplistic look at it, but, you know, business is, is about solving problems fundamentally, right? And and being able to, you know, get things done perhaps where other people are not willing to do the work or don't have the capability to do the work. And And I imagine just with that first business, I mean, you've stepped in where there's a massive need and let's be honest, very, very few people – um, at least, you know, most regular entrepreneurs wouldn't be willing to go there. But uh, I guess your level of tolerance and the, your threshold for um, and uh, to those kind of activities and what was going on there was was at a level that other people can't match.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, something else that influenced me. I'm not a big reader. I used to be when I was a kid. I, I read voraciously all around. Um, you know, been a fighter pilot war and empires and. I loved it. Then I sort of fell out of love with reading, and I I got this book. I think How to Start Your First Business for Dummies, and it was pretty boring. And uh, but I do remember one box in there that said, "If you're going to start business and you never have before, you've got to go somewhere where supply will never meet demand, and that way, if you don't know what you're doing, you'll still do okay." And and that was Afghanistan, right? Like it just needed every it needed everything. You name it, it it needed it. Um, You know, whereas I look at business in the Western world and what I do here, and I think. Yeah, you know, most of the stuff that props up our economy—if a bomb went off tomorrow—you don't need it. Uh, whereas over there, you did. Um, and I think that's why in Australia, and and why you look at the billionaire factory, non-tech billionaires—they're always they're all in fields that are you know shelter, fire, water, food—those um, those key those key elements. So I think that was another another thing. You what know, are some other pearlers that I uh, I got taught at the time was uh oh, That's right. Um, The best business to be in is the business that you can pack up in a briefcase and leave. Uh, You you learn that as well because the environment could change so much. You don't want to have, you know, $3 billion worth of of assets that you've forked out for and and then you can't use them, right? Yeah. Um, So that was was another interesting – so that for me always lent me to to service-based businesses where they're light and if something does go wrong, there's not a lot of – not a lot of pain that goes with it. It's,
1: it's fascinating, I'm, and I'm going to I'm going to hit you with some uh, some sort of more logistical, factual kind of stuff around that business in a second. But I, I just you know I've had another guest on recently, and um, and she built her business you know from very little up to about fifty mil turnover before she exited. And 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 I remember what she said was that the only thing that actually worked the way we thought was we came in with a plan and we we raised the money and bought the business, and then we exited the sort of the way we thought. In terms of, well, we sold it. That was it. Nothing, nothing else actually turned out the way we thought it would. She, you know, it turned out well. She had a good exit. It was, you know, lots learned, fabulous life, all those good stuff that comes out of a journey. But it was that ability to adapt. And, and you know, I'm coming back to your story there about flying the plane and seeing the dams. I think there's got to be something there, I believe, about that adaptiveness and, and even what you said about, you know, the get-it-done mindset of, hey, you are in this and if you want to get out of this, <laughs> you need to go from point A to point B one way or another.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's really interesting, the exit equation, because I divested most of my businesses in February 2020, unfortunately, because most of them weren't doing great aviation, hotels, and events, uh, which was the, tri- <laughs> the, the curve of trifecta, I call it. Uh, but um, when it came to doing a reset and moving forward, uh, for uh, this time for me is building a personal practice. It's not building a business, uh, which is a, was a real shift in mindset for me because when you build a personal practice, there's no exit. It's you. And when you stop, it's, it, it ends. So it becomes very much about a cash flow margin business, which is to generate as much as you can, invest in uh, solid fixed assets outside the business. Because uh, one of the challenges I, I think I had, where uh, I wasn't good at exiting you know, the first business, you know, the first business we, we built that up to turnover nearly nearly up to two hundred million bucks when I, when it fell into a heap, and I ended so, up with. Barely so, nothing I've got to, out of that. so I've got to ask that. Okay, two hundred million bucks. There's
1: a lot of people that are beginning to hear this right now and go, "That's oh, that's a, a mind blowing number to build in in how many years?" In three and a half. Three and so zero to two hundred million buck turnover in three and a half years. I, I think you've just beaten my one of my. Well, yeah, you're up there with my new records for this show now. So, <laughs> which that, that's a phenomenal rate of growth. And uh, talk to me about that a little bit. Like, you, you know, you got $2.8 million, I think it was. Like, that was blowing you away. What happened after that?
0: Yeah, so it was a very uh, – we were in labour and, and primarily providing human-centric solutions to things, uh, and that obviously created a, an, an enormous wage overhead for us. And we found when we were, when we were small, we were able to get paid quicker because it was more of an emotional connection, but as we got bigger – now we're dealing with companies that have ninety-day payment terms and they're multi-billion-dollar enterprises, and we're just this little company in Dubai. Uh, so the wage bill was starting to really get to us, and, and there was a lot of pressure there. And we missed we missed wages a couple of you know, a little bit, a couple in, in a couple of periods when, particularly when we grew into a new contract. Uh, so we brought in a partner. And I won't use any names or pack drills on this because course, it didn't yeah. end well. Um, and that part, now we, we effectively, me and Tom, probably the bad decision to make was uh, we. Uh, Tom stayed in the in the Middle East, and I went you know, back here. I came back to Australia. We we sort of split the company, and and I took like a it wasn't a minority. It was like a third shareholding in a holding company in Cyprus that we rolled up. The company that bought us and CTG, we rolled all of that into that offshore entity. So red flag, number one, minority shareholder in an offshore jurisdiction. Uh, (laughs) But at the time, everyone loved, you know, there was a lot of love in the room. You know, we're going to create, we were growing so quickly and there was so much going on that that we thought that it would be, uh, yeah, this is just going to be a no-brainer. And then I sort of, even though I was director and involved in the global business, I started to be, you know, I could start to see that this this company was just being used as a piggy bank for the company that bought us. And I, I had no visibility of the financials anything. So anyway, life was going on. I I, cop, I, cop, I got a copy of some financials at some stage and it showed 170 mil, you know, turnover. And I was like, phew, that's all right. It's like, oh, no, but there's debt here and there. And, you know, NAV is about two mil because I was like, oh, look, I'll just exit now. and it, So it just, just got messier and messier and messier, right? And, and to the point where we're just about to win a $150 million contract here in Australia. It was a 10-year wow. contract, 15 mil a year, blue-chip contract. Uh, and, again, I won't disclose it because it all ended up in court. And it fell through because the partner that I brought on board, being an offshore entity, wouldn't stump, stump up yeah, – million wouldn't stump up half a mil in a bank guarantee locally wow. uh, and said and, and asked me to do it. And I was like, well, I'm not doing it because I'm, I'm guaranteeing my half of the contract. You've got to guarantee your half. And it – uh, so from there, I had an offer from another company that came in to buy my business and they stumped it up and then the, this company that originally got involved called the client directly, said there's something untoward going on and because they're a blue-chip you know, company owned by Australian superannuation funds, they went, look, mate, as much as we really want to do this with you, it's just getting too messy. We're, we're just going to step away and, and torpedo the deal. Uh, and, then, uh, and then that was it. That, I just divested my interest in that company. I knew I was involved with a crook. And uh, started all over again with a, with a, a two year old son, wow. And then um, and uh, that was okay. I moved to Papua New Guinea, did some stuff, rebuilt. It wasn't wasn't the end of the world. I saw it coming. You know, I'm kind of proud of the fact that I managed to get back. That was my whole life, my whole every dollar cent, all that effort in Afghanistan annihilated in that one phone call. And I knew then I, I, I spoke to a lawyer in Cyprus, and I spoke, and they're like, look, man. It's not gonna go anywhere. Good luck. Um then I heard that this guy also he was a he was a tenant in a house over there, massive villa, and didn't pay the rent and and then um invoked squatters' rights and ended up having taking his thing over anyway, it was a freaking disaster. And then six years later I get served and sued for ten million dollars for it being my fault that we lost this contract. And that was four years in court. Wow. We one in the Supreme we won in the Supreme Court of Australia. And,
1: and, so, and who, who served you? Was it the your former partner? Was it a the
0: well, former with- partner the business the business? Yeah, so the business that that I uh, started with them that in Australia that that business was the uh, plaintiff, uh, wow. the despondent, disposed despondent, whatever it's called, and uh, me and and uh, luck, I think fortunate for me, they also sued uh, seventy six partners of the law firm that was uh, the the company lawyer at the time as well. So that 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 went for ages. It was a it was a slated to be a three day trial. It had to be rescheduled. It ended up going for two weeks. We won first time round. Uh, went to court of appeals. Won second time round. But just a trail of just a a disaster. And one piece of advice I would uh, definitely give anyone out there if you're in this situation is be completely honest about everything that happened. Even if it's viewed that you might have done the wrong thing or in, in a courtroom, everything, everything starts to look a bit shady, even though you're like, hang on a minute, we'll, we went through process, we went through due process, we provided emails, we did all this. The way that the, 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 the lawyer is talking, you're being cross-examined, you're like, oh, and you just got to be honest and go, look, this is what was going on, this is what was in my head. And then when it's all over, you know, you, you, you come out and it's like you're an, honest, you're an honest witness, did the best you could do the end of the day you know the, the the other party didn't pay the bond the bond was in the contract it's here it's there it's everywhere there's it a formal letter of, of from the from the customer that they're not going to move forward with it so you know so it was it was a really horrible experience and, and I was you know in the in the chair for three days including over the weekend and and you've been cross-examined you're not allowed to talk to anyone say anything wow. and you think you're gonna you think you're gonna lose right you're, you're always there thinking it's just a horrible I don't think anyone feels good when you're in in that environment you know
1: yeah, I, I think the idea of going to court sends shivers down most people's spine. So, uh, yeah,
0: yeah and, and I think pe- people avoid it, and maybe people settle. But for me, I was really confident that we acted with integrity, and we were honest, and we gave them every opportunity to participate. And they had an ulterior motive, which played out in court, and they and they lost. So, there's the upside of that whole thing. Is, is again, it's just another entrepreneur's journey it's just another four years of doing something shit but if you're if you believe and you and you're you're you did act you did act in the right way you just got to get through it and, and at the end you'll you'll win yes there's that story about the i loved it it was something that resonated to me it was the guy can't remember what it is now but it's um it's the story about the guy that invented the automatic windscreen wiper and ford stole the idea off him and put automatic windscreen wipers. It was where you had like intermittent mode. And this guy pursued them in the courts for like 15 years, lost his family, lost everything. But in the end he won and he got back paid all of the windscreen wipers there for But anyway, so I watch that and you and you go, look, when you believe and you genuinely, your conscious is telling you, you you did the right things and this is wrong, I think you've got to stick with that and believe that it's going to happen. And and then you find the right people around you. Like, I was running out of money. And um, yeah, but then your your lawyer and your barrister start to be- they believe your story and they they're into the case and they're like, look, we'll, we'll carry it from here and then we'll we'll get paid when we win. Um, so so I was super lucky then to be supported by really, really great people. But it, it again it just taught me it just taught me another another big lesson, which is this was a massive company that invested in us, right? and you either you either control your company or you leave your company it's it's really hard to have someone else come into your company and from going from an owner or a founder into a minority shareholder i think i don't think i'd ever and from that day forward i've never held anything less than 50% in a business and always with a break clause
1: yeah, gosh, that's a hard lesson. That, that it's a lesson that many people learn the hard way. Um, I personally have been there myself. It's um, it is very very challenging. And you know what? What I also see, it, 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 which is interesting, is companies that are on the growth path. You know, I've got a client at the moment. They do about 20 mil turnover, and there's this idea of bringing in other shareholders. And, you know, I was having a conversation with this particular one of the clients and said, if you go down this path, you will go from being the majority shareholder to a minority with about 20%. And effectively, everybody sitting in that room can fire you from your job and your own company. So how do you feel about that? <laughs> um, and and it's it, the, I think the thing is that people get caught up in the romance of the vision. Oh yeah, we're going to do this. It's amazing, and we're all best mates, and it'll be fabulous, and we'll take over the world. And they don't really think about the fact that things can go wrong.
0: No, I totally agree. Um, and you're naive, and yeah, we were. You know, this business in the Middle East was growing fast, and it was a it was a dot com boom type of ride, you know. And and you just thought everything was going to go. Fine, um, and and it highlighted another thing. You know, we were living in different countries. I was the only one here. Everyone else was, you know, either in Cyprus, London, or, or the US. It was really hard to coordinate. The less you speak, the more detached you come from each other. The more everyone else gets there. everything it becomes a personal agenda rather than the team agenda. And and that the client you're talking to there, it's and one of the things I've learned is that's just it's there's a degree of impatience when it comes to growth. You know, and and uh, there's, I remember another great story. Uh, it was in the papers a couple of years ago, and it was about a janitor at uh, I think he worked up at Chatswood at the school at Chatswood, or, and his whole life he was a janitor. But when he passed away, he had a seven eight million dollar property portfolio. <laughs> um, you know, and, and 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 for me that was a great from nothing. Bought his first home, never earned more than a janitor, but just invested and constantly grew that portfolio. Just over a period of 45 50 years uh, and that to me again uh, I, don't, I'm, I have ADHD so I don't have that default mindset I, I I have an urgency mindset and and that's why as I get older I if I, I harness that into a personal practice and create that cash flow it makes me work every every week every every month every year to, to earn I don't have to I don't have I don't have to worry about something happening in five years where I've got to start over again so I quite like that I Again, it's it's, it's being the last guy in the rowing team. It's been the last guy on the volleyball team. It's it's growing a business, but it never ends. So for me, I've I've matched my business to my default human state because I'll never not be that person. Uh, but it, but it, so so the trick there is to give your money to someone that is that type of person. And and I think most business decisions, or what I've learned anyway, I'm not certainly going to talk on behalf of anyone else. But for me, most bad decisions most in bad investment decisions, growth decisions and exit decisions is this um, false understanding of time pressure or this false belief in that time pressure. And I think if, you know, I talk about it now in my practice about red teaming about always, and this is I think why what you do Simon so valuable is you've got to have someone that's not you, that's not invested in, in your enrichment or invested in in your decision making, who's invested in what you're trying to do to help advise you. And, and unless you're a psychopath, you'll tend to take that advice on board. Some people don't, but I think that third set of eyes is is super duper uh, super duper important. Yeah, look, obviously,
1: at the sound uh, risk of sounding self serving, I, I totally agree. It's it's you do see so often people are very good at what they do, and you know, like possibly building a home. Most people who build their own home, they will only do it once. Now, most people who sell a company will only sell one company in their life. So if you're really good at making and selling widgets, stick to making and selling widgets and get people around you that you can trust to give you good advice and help deliver on the things that you're not the expert in.
0: Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. Ab- absolutely. And, and that's the problem, I think. It's, uh, you know, psychologically we're our own worst critic. Uh, we we suffer this optimism bias. We we always believe things are easier than they are. Um, we forget, because again, we're human, so we we do f- tend to forget the bad things that happen. We just we reprogram our mind over it and we're prone to to do the same things over and over. And that's I now um, mentor this debriefing process, which is just a check-in once a day, just reflect and just go, hang on, well, why are we here? What what do we set out to achieve? What's happening? Are we still making the right decisions? And and it gives you a, it. just gives you a circuit breaker, and you might do it on a monthly or weekly basis, whatever it is. But just a bit of a circuit breaker to check back in, rather than just follow that bouncing ball or that rabbit as it disappears off on a off on another pathway. And when you you finally look back up and look around, you are like, it's snowing. Where the hell, what the hell am I doing here?
1: <laughs> Kansas has <is> gone bye bye. <laughs> so, mate, in your current practice now, you are obviously been able to bundle up this. Amazing journey and experience that you've been through in your life, um, and and I am a you know some of the things you've talked about today. I'm I'm always a big believer that we learn more from things that go wrong than we do from things that go right. Um, you know, things go right. I think human nature is we go, oh wow, well I was pretty good with that, um, <laughs> as opposed to maybe yeah. looking at some of the, the the luck factors or other things that might have come into play. But so you've taken this experience, you've bundled it up. What are you doing? Like, talk to me a little bit more about what you do today. And, and you know, are you mentoring business owners? Is it one on one? Do you work in groups? What are the kind of people that you help?
0: So, look, I've I've primarily worked with corporate groups. Um, I'm uh, making a segue and big corporates where you know our uh, program cost isn't is 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 absorbable in their budgets. Uh, for SMEs, it's unaccessible. So, building a community of SMEs to to take them on this uh, to take them on this journey, and uh, it's really it's again building your own practice is it's like being an entrepreneur. Your head's this big, but yeah, most people have got seven seconds to to listen to what you're trying to to help them with, and then you've got to you've got to build like a reverse funnel that opens up as you as you work with them to help give them more and more information. So, so landing the message there for me is is landing around this concept of. Uh, G I D and I noticed that when I was around the family or the kids or people and someone had go, oh, I don't feel like doing it. It's like, look, just G I D. And I don't know whether I got it with Tom when we're in the Middle East. Just it was just like G I D. It's it's a cognitive mantra that the minute that thought comes into your head, which is oh, this is just too hard, it's just G I D. Just get it done, and then it's done. And it's it's literally yeah, I've got, we've got we live on a on a side of a hill, right? So there's lots of stairs. So there's. There's always an issue with getting the garbage down the stairs or bringing stuff up the stairs, right? So you're forever walk, you're forever walking past a box, and uh, it's like ah, GID, and we're having a baby in two weeks. There's like frigging boxes of baby stuff right? So so for me, it's that GID, and then and it's in business as well. It's like yeah, I've got to write a book, right? So you sit there and you and you umming and ahhing and go, I'm just gonna have a think about it. And then it's like, no, just GID, sit down and start writing. Because from the moment you, you, you make the decision to get it done and you give yourself five minutes to, to, to allow the focus, then it starts to become easy. It sort of cuts through procrastination It it gets you out of a rut. And it's, it's purely mindset. It's purely every time you have a tough decision to make, the mindset is G-I-D. Just get it done, uh, and and from there you, you get momentum. And momentum is, is is something that creates neurochemistry in our body. And neurochemistry creates energy. Concentration of thought makes us a better, happier person. And from there, it becomes everything becomes a little bit easier. Um, and that practice now around SMEs is particularly focused on growth phase or stagnation phase. So someone that's just come out of of, a, of an entrepreneur enterprise, they're finally making some money but they know they've got to reinvest now to go to that next level. And that's tough. Like that's that's almost like – and that's risky as well because you're going to – this is when you start hiring people and they're not talent and you've got to – yeah, it's a whole set of set of problems for them. Or you've been in a family business for 10 years and you, it's just doing the same thing every day and you've got to go to the next level. So to me, that's where you've got to make that, that hard decision, which is just, you know, GID, we've got to grow. We've got to get out of stagnation. We, we have to go from – uh, the, the stage one growth and the stage two growth. Let's let's just get it done, and and if you if you adapt that mindset and think a certain way, I think you can do it. And I've done it, you know, in the air force and with uh, three businesses successfully. Um, it, it, it's transformational. It just gives you something to hang your hat on when there isn't a lot out there to hang your hat on. Yeah, I, mate, I absolutely love that. Just get it done.
1: You know it is, and it's funny. Anybody who has kids too will understand and appreciate that. You know the the procrastination, certainly that my kids tend to do. You know, and and trying to instill in this instill in them this idea that actually once you start moving, once you start t- um, taking action on things, a you're going to feel a hell of a lot better. But b you know because you're moving and you're you're no longer in indecision mode. Right, you actually have a purpose. You're moving. Um, and that that will overcome so many of the sort of negative feelings and lethargy and all these sort of other problems that, that, that most humans sort of tend to deal with. So, mate, that, that, that's absolutely, you know, I think if anybody, if everyone takes away one thing from this entire show, it's got to be just get it done. Um,
0: absolutely And, and I'll it. tell you this, mate, I was, one of the fascinating things about this journey is I'm actually in the books and I was, I was reading a um, case study uh, this morning on this on this very topic, and it was really interesting. It was a, it was a, a study that researchers did to try and define the difference between a high performing person in business and a normal person in business. And they had over six hundred thirty eight thousand touch points people in this in this uh, study, right? And they discovered that a high performing person inside an organization has 400% more productivity than the average employee. I thought it might have been 2% or, yeah, oh, sorry, maybe 30% or maybe double, but 400%. And they they just talk about this concept of momentum and that, that theory around you want something done, give it to a busy person. So to me, the GID mindset that just triggers you into a, into those high-performance behaviours, that's living four times more life than anyone else does in their life fitting for, you know, and, and when I talk to people, they're like, and you're only 46 and you did all that. And you go, well, yeah, because you just every day, 6.30, boom, let's get into it. Let's get it, get it done. Get, and you, and you might be a bit, you know, you, 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 as in this life as everyone does, you, you, you toy a bit with depression, you, you have your bad days, your bad weeks, your bad months, but you, 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 you just come back to that. And you can live this incredibly rich and and full life, not only be successful in business, but in life. And I I think that's what we that's what we have this opportunity for with this mindset, is to give ourselves four times as much life in the same amount of time. Boo! That that's some of the
1: best advice I think anybody could uh, could possibly ask for. You know, I mate, I'm just I'm so grateful to have had you on the show. Um, I, I just think there'll be so many people that will listen to your story and your message, and and take away so much from it. Um, you know, one one of my big beliefs is that you know none of us are actually born to do business. You know, we're born to live our lives, and and once you work out that what that is, you know, you shape a business to deliver you the life you want. But at the end of the day, you've got to you've got to get it done. You've got to work it out. You'd get on the horse and get moving, right? So,
0: um, so I... I- you've got it. There's no... There's just, there's just no one else is going to do it, you know, and, uh, it, and then when you, when you see the value of life after living in, in, in countries and environments where that value is quite low, um, that's also, you know, having a chronic medical condition, uh, you know, had four near-mid-air near collisions as a pilot. When you start to value every day... You, you really want to squeeze the most out of it as well. And I think in one of the challenges in the Western world now in the first world is there's not a lot of problems. It's not really, you don't really have to be that resilient. We talk about resilience in business and it's like, are you kidding me? Like that's, you know, resilience is someone get, saying something nasty to you and you walk past them or losing their temper a little bit. Um, <laughs> you, you know, so, so contextualizing that in life as well is, is important. You, it's a, it's, a, it's a precious thing that we have. And you're right, your, your business is an enabler um, for your life. And it, it, if, you, if you can put 200% of that 400 into your business, you've got 200% extra to spend on the beach. Yeah, absolutely, mate. H- how do people
1: get in touch with you? Are you? I, I imagine you're on LinkedIn or something. What, what's uh, what's the best way for people to reach out?
0: Yeah, uh, LinkedIn. Uh, obviously, with a name like Christian Bakusis, no one can spell or pronounce it. Uh, so <laughs> if you just go to uh, a web a web address, callmeboo.com, dot uh, that will redirect you into uh, the right space.
1: Fabulous. Callmeboo.com, dot com, and that's b double Mate, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been you know, such an interesting and exciting episode. I, I honestly could sit here for another couple of hours and God help us if we had a beer in our hands, but um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but I'd There's love to catch up again. There's got to
0: be a podcast again. around that. People talk about oh, uh, the podcast form, it's like having a beer in a bar. I'm like, you know what, let's just start the Beer in a Bar podcast and actually <laughs> stick it in the corner of the bar an hour before opening and, and uh, have a few cans. <laughs> yeah, mate, that sounds fabulous. Our editors might have a bigger
1: job to do, of course, but, uh, <laughs> of course. but mate, I'm I'm willing to
0: give it a go if you are. So, uh,
1: but mate, Awesome, Simon. Thanks so much for being on the show. Really appreciate it. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy Grow Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximise company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.